from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. Hello and welcome back to Terranforma. It sure has been a while since our last new episode. That's because we've been working to restructure the show for the past few months. Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to explain the new format. This season, Terranforma will only produce new episodes monthly. In between those episodes, we'll rebroadcast some of our favorite archive episodes, or even bring you some original content created by friends of the show. Check in for the first of each month for a brand new episode. And with that announcement out of the way, welcome to the first news roundup of 2023. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was written and produced in traditional territories across Canada, Treaty 6 in Central Alberta, Treaty 7 in Southern Alberta, an unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. Our show airs from the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory in Amiskachi, Wiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We're broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials, like Frank Oliver, to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we're catching you up on all the environmental news you might have missed while Terra Informa has been away. For the first story of this news roundup, here's Lizzie Barron covering coal protests in Germany, which saw climate activists like Greta Thunberg detained by police. In mid-January, prominent climate activist Greta Thunberg was detained by the police of German city Aachen while protesting the expansion of Garsweiler, an open-cast lignite mine close to the village of Lutzerath. Thunberg was detained with fellow climate activists. As she explained in her January 18, 2023 tweet, the group was, quote, kettled by police and then detained, but were let go later that evening. Climate protection is not a crime, end quote. By protesting at Lutzerath, Thunberg used her platform and prominence as a climate activist to increase awareness to the mine expansion and increase awareness to the protests local climate activists in the area have been participating in. Open-cast mining, also known as open-pit mining, is a mining practice that happens on the surface, rather than below ground, as rocks and or minerals are removed from an open pit that is dug into the earth. This is the type of mining that occurs at the to-be-expanded Garsweiler mine. 
Opencast mines tend to be very environmentally destructive because in order to dig up and consequently expose the mine, rock that has not been exposed is brought to the surface, which can lead to noxious substances like radioactive elements and metallic dust coming up from the ground to organisms and the air. As well, tailings from the mine are at risk of getting into the mine's bedrock if these tailings are not contained properly. A further worrisome component of this particular mine is what is being mined from it. In the case of the Garsweiler mine, it is being used to mine lignite, aka brown coal, which is primarily used in utility, particularly to generate electricity. Lignite is a poignant pollutant because it is not a very dense material and thus large quantities of it need to be burned in order to generate sufficient energy. So its continued extraction is worrisome as it would add more pollution to the atmosphere. Furthermore, in the process of creating open cast mines, large swaths of land have to be displaced and damaged. This displacement and damage to the land is a motivating factor of the protests, as the mine's expansion requires the whole village of Lutzrath to be demolished. As reported by PBS NewsHour on January 15th, Lutzrath's demolition was cemented in a deal struck between the German government at both regional and national levels and the utility company RWE, which operates the mine such that RWE would be able to expand Garsweiler and demolish Lutzrath so long as RWE ends coal use by 2030, as opposed to an earlier deadline of 2038. While this deal may sound promising in some ways, you know, a utility company is pledging to end coal use by 2030, climate activists who are protesting at Lutzrath, including Thunberg, have made the point and have made the demand that an eventual incremental turn from coal at this point in the climate crisis is not as helpful as an immediate turn to renewable energy. This has been Lizzie Barron for Terra Informa. Thanks for listening. For our next story, we're talking about a powerful sighting in New York City's Bronx River. On the evening of January 16th, New York City resident Nick Banco was on a bike ride through the city's Starlight Park when he spotted something in the nearby Bronx River that would make anyone pause. A pair of dolphins leisurely gliding through the water. Banco quickly grabbed his phone to take a video for his Instagram account, posting what the city's Parks and Recreation Department confirms as the first sighting of dolphins in the Bronx River since 2017. Wildlife experts note that sightings of dolphins are more common in the New York Harbor, the harbor that separates New York and New Jersey, because of the presence of Atlantic bunkerfish. Sightings as far north as the Bronx, however, are much less common, making Banco sighting, and the several others that have followed it, a curious attraction for area residents. For people like Howard Rosenbaum, A dolphin expert at the Wildlife Conservation Society, these sightings represent an environmental recovery caused by decades of improved environmental stewardship and better overall environmental relations. The Bronx River rises north of New York City. It cuts through the Bronx before terminating in the East River, the estuary that separates the Bronx and Manhattan from Brooklyn and Queens. It was a time where the nearly 39-kilometer-long Bronx River was considered a vibrant waterway. But in an all-too-common tale, the Bronx River became what some called an open sewer in the 19th century due to the sheer volume of industrial waste running from nearby plants. In response, species of dolphins, turtles, and fish plummeted in number. 
The creation of the Bronx City Parkway in 1925 is considered the earliest attempt to revitalize the river by effectively creating a buffer to the various sources of pollution. It wasn't until the 1970s when Ruth Anderberg founded the Bronx River Restoration Project that meaningful restoration activities became a possibility. By the early 2000s, industrial activity near the river had dramatically declined. Municipalities agreed to stop dumping waste and other pollutants into the river, and over $10 million of federal funding had been received by the city to help assist with rehabilitation efforts. In 2007, the Bronx River welcomed its first beaver in over 200 years, and now other aquatic animals, like snapping turtles, can be found. When the city's Parks and Recreation Department released 400 adult alewife, a type of herring, into the river, they were hoping to help improve the water ecology. Officials now believe the dolphins spotted in mid-January may have made their way to the river naturally in search of these fish, which are restocked by the Parks Department every year. In any event, the return of dolphins to the Bronx River is a sign that conservation efforts have substantially improved watershed conditions. talking about the heated discussion which broke out over gas stoves in late January. Hello, this is Lizzie Barron. In November of 2022, the American Public Health Association, or APHA, an organization comprised of medical professionals that advocate for public health, including through publishing the American Journal of Public Health, published a policy statement entitled Gas Stove Emissions Are Public Health Concern. Exposure to indoor nitrogen dioxide increases risk of illness in children, older adults, and people with underlying health conditions. Then, on December 21st, 2022, a paper was released in the peer-reviewed journal, International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, entitled Population Attributable Fraction of Gas Stoves and Childhood Asthma in the United States by Grunewald et al. Both papers emphasize the harms of gas stoves, especially as related to children's respiratory health. The concern is that the burning of gas that occurs in gas stoves ends up releasing harmful matter into the air. Such harmful matter includes nitrogen dioxide, or NO2, PM2.5 aka particulate matter, carbon monoxide, formaldehyde, and methane. The release and concentration of all of these chemicals have been associated with detrimental health effects, including by agencies like the United States' Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, Health Canada, and the UN's World Health Organization, WHO. Such detrimental health effects are particularly related to respiratory health issues like asthma, and findings have indicated that gas stoves can increase the risk of childhood asthma in particular. Gas stoves are especially harmful because they emit nitrogen dioxide because the NO2 emission concentrations from gas stoves can exceed the guidelines for NO2 concentrations as set by the EPA and the WHO. NO2 is this concern because electric stoves do not emit NO2, so there is a method to avoid this large harmful NO2 emission using electric stoves instead of gas stoves. Despite the seemingly apolitical nature of stoves or appliances in general, gas stoves have ignited a new element of American culture wars because a commissioner, Richard Trumka Jr. with the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, indicated that options for dealing with gas stoves are available, including possibly banning them for new developments or in situations where there is a choice between installing a new gas stove or a new electric stove. 
While this was a non-committal and initial piece of information provided by Trumpka Jr., it enabled right-wing discourse to cook with gas, as the potential ban on gas stoves was perceived as government overreach and an infringement of liberties. This discourse uh, occurred to a legislative end to the extent that Republican Senator Ted Cruz and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin introduced a bill called the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act, which bars the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission from utilizing funds to ban new gas stoves, putting standards on existing gas stoves, and doing anything that will increase the average price of gas stoves. Gas stoves being a component of political theater than being considered an environmental and health risk illuminates a situation we have all been more and more familiar with where people and the planet's well-being are put behind political clout and capital. This has been Lizzie Barron for Terra Informa. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're covering some of the most interesting news stories from the start of 2023. Here's Lizzie Barron with the latest on just transition legislation. One of the stories you may have missed in the past few months is the plans for the Canadian federal government to introduce just transition legislation. What is just transition legislation? This legislation will help workers in oil and gas industry find employment in green energy jobs. As Canada continues to decarbonize, workers in the fossil fuel sector won't find themselves high and dry without other opportunities available to them. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson stated that there are more than enough jobs available in clean energy sectors. The Just Transition Plan also helps industries adopt clean energy technology to transition to net zero emissions, using tools such as carbon capture and sequestration. Sounds great! Who could possibly find any reason to be upset with this? Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, was upset with this. She even went so far as to say that she would fight the just transition idea with every tool at Alberta's disposal. To be fair to Premier Smith, her opposition may stem from her fundamental misunderstanding of what the legislation says. A statement from the Premier's office claims just transition isn't about a transition at all. It's about eliminating entire sectors of our economy and hundreds of thousands of good Alberta jobs deemed too quote-off-quote dirty by elites in Ottawa, end quote. In a video on social media, Smith quotes directly from a federal briefing note to say, quote, Canadians thrown out of work by climate change programs can always get jobs as janitors, end quote. Her tweets about the Just Transition Plan highlight the economic damage as it would eliminate 2.7 million jobs as per a leaked memo from the federal government. Except this supposed leaked memo slash document really doesn't say that. There aren't even 2.7 million jobs total in Alberta, as per the Alberta Labor Force statistics. Also, it's not even a leaked memo. It is simply a public document, available to anybody to access and read. So there's also that. And as you might expect, the quote about finding jobs as janitors, it was not from a briefing note written by the federal government, but rather a story from a news outlet. The 2.7 million number comes from a total estimate of jobs in all sectors expected to experience a, quote, larger-scale transformation, end quote. Despite Minister Wilkinson and multiple media institutions correcting this information, Transportation Minister Devin Dreeshen perpetuated the myth in a tweet about the transition killing 2.7 million jobs in Alberta. Premier Smith's ire was also drawn to the term just transition, and not just because it's a fun pun. According to her, the term is social justice language that targets the oil and gas industry. 
Alberta Environment Minister Sonia Savage called it polarizing since it was used by climate organizations. You know, the people asking for action on the climate crisis. Premier Smith asked to collaborate with the federal government on new legislation after claiming she had no input in the proposed just transition legislation. Though, as Minister Wilkinson points out, the federal government did engage with former provincial governments on climate action. Her proposed legislation would incentivize investment into conventional energy as well as clean fossil fuels like carbon capture. So less of a just transition and more of a somewhat transition. She also seeks to ensure the federal government doesn't set targets on the most carbon-intensive sectors, those being energy, agriculture, and industry. Just transition is a critical part of climate action efforts. It acknowledges that there is a lot of employment in the fossil fuel sector. For climate action to be socially accepted, we need to reduce the number of people who stand to lose from less oil and gas production. But, as concerning as the opposition to the just transition is, the real concerning issue in this story is the speed and supposed willingness of the provincial government to spread misinformation. Numerous facts and supposed quotes straight from the source, leaked of course, were proven to be wrong, completely incorrect. And while a misquote could be understood if immediately corrected, numerous lawmakers seem content to share the numbers that support their narrative, regardless of accuracy. For many Albertans, Premier Smith or a member of her government's tweets and social media may be the first and only source of information on the topic, and when that information is fraught with disinformation, it's easy to understand why climate change is contentious and polarizing. We need to hold our elected officials to higher standards, and we need to be vigilant about combating disinformation and uncovering the truth. However, in the era of the 24-hour news cycle and social media news feeds as the news cycle, this gets harder and harder unless we make it a priority to fact-check. Information or disinformation is a powerful tool that can be used to hide an inconvenient truth. As the climate crisis continues, Canada needs a just transition. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, In the beginning half of the show, we covered some environmental news you might have missed in January and February. For the rest of the show, we're sharing some of our favorite stories from March and April. First up, here's Sarah Chitsaz on a very historic agreement signed last month. After a decade of talks, the historic High Seas Treaty was signed in early March, according to the BBC. High Seas Treaty establishes MPAs, short for Marine Protected Areas. According to Fisheries and Oceans Canada, marine protected areas are legally protected and managed parts of the oceans, intended for long-term conservation. Now, MPAs can provide protection to marine areas and species, but it's important to bear in mind that MPAs don't necessarily mean that no extractive or damaging activities can take place in their jurisdiction. It really just depends on the MPA. Two-thirds of the world's oceans are considered to be international waters. The high seas refers to an area of, to quote, international waters where all countries have a right to fish, ship, and do research, end quote. And up to now, only 1% of the high seas have been protected. According to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, 10% of marine species have been found to be at risk of extinction as of their latest assessment. This risk to marine species is largely tied to overfishing and pollution, 
And it's been estimated that 41% of the threatened species are also affected by climate change. A global goal of protecting 30% of the world's oceans by 2030 was agreed on at the 2022 UN Biodiversity Conference. The High Seas Treaty will allow countries to propose areas to be protected, and these areas will be voted on by the signatories to the treaty. The MPAs in the High Seas Treaty will include limits on how much fishing can happen in the areas, the routes of shipping lanes, and exploration activities including deep sea mining, which is when minerals are taken from a seabed that's at least 200 meters below the surface. One potential concern with ocean exploration is that countries have unequal access to technology and resources for discovering marine genetic resources. Marine genetic resources refer to biological materials from plants and animals in the ocean. Marine genetic resources can have benefits for society, such as pharmaceuticals and food advancements. An important part of the High Seas Treaty is that it aims to account for the equity of access to marine genetic resources between countries by including arrangements for sharing these resources and discoveries. The High Seas Treaty will also set out requirements for environmental impact assessments, also called EIAs for short, for deep sea activities, including mining. The High Seas Treaty will enter into force once 60 countries have signed on and ratified, meaning they have passed the treaty into legislation. Signatories will then have to figure out how to practically implement and manage these measures. While MPAs will not necessarily provide complete protection for marine ecosystems, the High Seas Treaty is an important step towards conserving more of our world's oceans. For our next headline, we've got a story about land protection initiatives in British Columbia. Here's Sarah again. A new IPCA, or Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area, has been declared by the Simpa First Nation in the Roush River watershed. IPCAs were conceptualized by the Indigenous Circle of Experts, a federally funded group in Canada, in their We Rise Up report from 2018. According to the report, IPCAs is a term that encompasses a variety of land protection initiatives. These can include tribal parks, Indigenous cultural landscapes, Indigenous protected areas, and Indigenous conserved areas. The Indigenous Circle of Experts conducted an engagement process across Canada and found that IPCAs can look different but share three elements. They are Indigenous-led, they represent a long-term commitment to conservation, and they elevate Indigenous rights and responsibilities. According to the We Rise Up report, IPCAs can take different forms, but should, quote, promote respect for Indigenous knowledge systems, respect protocols and ceremony, support the revitalization of Indigenous languages, seed conservation economies if possible, conserve cultural keystone species and protect food security, and adopt integrated holistic approaches to governance and planning. While IPCAs are designed to benefit Indigenous communities, the result is biodiversity conservation and healthier ecosystems, and that really benefits us all by serving us with 
cleaner air and water, improved human health, and mitigation of risks associated with climate change. Protected and conserved areas can help Canada meet its international conservation commitments. To note, IPCAs are not necessarily recognized by provincial or federal Canadian governments, though. This means that when they're not recognized, they don't have any legal standing here. First Nations with IPCAs may, however, strike agreements with Crown governments to help fund operations, including programs like Land Guardian programs. According to the CBC, in addition to the Roush River watershed, there have been three IPCAs established in Canada since 2018. Roush Valley is in BC's Caribou region, on the eastern side of BC, just southeast of Prince George, and the IPCA will include old-growth rainforest. The Roush River is a tributary of the Fraser River, and the Roush watershed is about 100,000 hectares large. The Roush Valley IPCA will protect wildlife habitat and fish habitat, including that of salmon and bull trout. It technically surrounds two provincial protected areas, Upper Roush and Lower Roush, which cover just about 1 15th of the watershed, while most of the valley is still open to industrial logging. As written in the Narwhal, the Roush IPCA has received support and positive statements from different stakeholders in the area, including Roger Peterson, whose family has ranched on the valley's outskirts since the 1960s, Conservation North, a science-based group that advocates for nature in central and northern BC based in Prince George, and Fraser Headwaters Alliance, which has advocated for the protection of the Roush Valley for over 25 years. BC's Ministry of Water, Land, and Resource Stewardship emailed a statement to CBC News saying, quote, the Simp First Nations IPCA declaration won't change how the province currently uses the land in the Roush Valley, but the province is willing to work with the community in preserving the land, end quote. The Roush Valley IPCA is in early planning stages, and the Simp First Nation will be consulting with local residents, mayors, and groups as they move forward. We look forward to seeing the results of this IPCA. For a final story, here's Sarah with a very timely warning ahead of the upcoming season. We're getting into bear season. As CTV News reported, on March 23rd, there was the first bear sighting of the year in Banff National Park. The regional municipality of Wood Buffalo has also reminded residents to stay bear smart as Alberta is home to over 40,000 black bears. Over in eastern Canada, the west end of Ottawa has seen a black bear in the Bells Corners neighborhood on April 19th. The city is working with the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry to humanely trap the bear and take it back to the wilderness. Over on the west coast, although it seems like bears may be waking up a bit later in the season than usual, the province of BC has issued reminders to stay safe around bears and to be bear aware. Some common recommendations for staying bear safe in Canada include don't feed bears, remain calm and slowly back away without turning your back to the bear, 
Do not scream, kneel down, make direct eye contact, run or climb a tree. Try to keep your distance from the bear. If it gets too close, use pepper spray or bear spray and make sure that you know how to use this before using it. If you're with others, stay in a group, keep children close and carry any small children with you. Go indoors and bring pets indoors if you can and watch the bear until it leaves. If you're spending time in bear territory or forested areas, try to avoid wearing headphones or anything that can obstruct your hearing. Report any bear sightings to the appropriate authorities for your area. And more information about bear safety can be found on the Parks Canada website. Stay safe out there and be bear aware. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Jacinta Royengeza. Thank you for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you've heard this month, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa, or head to our website, terrainforma.com. Next week, we'll revisit another one of our favorite archive episodes. Catch you next month for a brand new episode right here on Terra Informa.